You're listening to Utah Car Sense with Jeff Miller and Austin Horton. Presented by Mark Miller Subaru on 97.5 and 1280 The Zone and The Zone Sports Network. Welcome back, Hour 2 here on the show. Uh, ending the month of August, eight months through the year. Austin Horton here with you. George Roska in for Jeff Miller this week. George is the general sales manager of the Midtown Store at 3535 South State. Eric Jensen producing for us today. And your phone calls at 855-340-ZONE. 855-340-ZONE. George, we're getting closer and closer to a time when the theaters look like they're going to be back up and running at full strength. They are back open and running. But once they get back to full strength, we might find our way uh, into giving away some more movie passes at some point. I know, that's been the worst part of this summer. There have been no <laughs> movies to go watch. Yeah, we're getting there, though. Tenet has been announced uh, for next month, uh, the, the new Christopher Nolan. Have you seen the trailer for that? Uh-uh, I'll have to check that one out. I always love Christopher Nolan. Yeah, the it's it's it looks like this a similar feel and, and uh, uh, atmosphere to his inception with uh, Leo DiCaprio, again, mentioned here on the show for the second okay, time today. Okay. This, but this, this one stars uh, Denzel's son. Uh, is it John David Washington? I think that's his name. Uh, and he's a terrific actor. Uh, you probably saw him in The Black Klansman, I believe. Uh, but anyway, he he uh, is a great actor, and Christopher Nolan knows how to make a very good movie. And hopefully that will be the return to the theaters in full force when Tenet comes out here in a few weeks. But in any case, your phone calls eight five five. 340 zone. Uh, before we get into some Elon Musk news here, uh, George, I wanted to run this idea by you because Jeff and I were talking about it last week, and I think it's really a great idea, and I think that it's probably the best idea to solve this problem that I have with electric vehicles for right now, but it's not over, it's not like taking the world by storm either, and I wonder why. So, China's uh, auto company NIO NIO has oh, has started a program where electric vehicle drivers can swap batteries in five minutes and be back on the road. So they don't have to stop and charge their own car's battery. They pull into like a service station. The battery is removed. The new bat the charged battery is put in, and within five minutes they're back on the road. Very similar to how much time it takes you to to fill back up at a gas station now these days. Uh, And I think that that is a really good idea, but I don't see it. it, They've been doing it for a few years in China, but Neo is a pretty small to scale company. And it's not really taking the world by storm, like I said, but for just $12 a month, you subscribe to this and you just pull in, swap your battery out. And you're back on the road. Do you have any thoughts on that? It's a it's a cool system. I'm I'm reading about it right now, and um, I mean, definitely a big improvement over having to sit and wait an hour or two to have your your battery charged. Um, and it looks like they've completed like 500,000 swaps over the last few years in in China. Mm-hmm. So if if they can get it up and running and really build out that infrastructure, I mean, that's going to be the challenging part, as with everything with new technology. Um, but I could see that kind of taking off if they can get it to where it's three to five minutes, you pull in, you got another 500 miles of range, you're good to go. But the issue is going to be how, how long is it going to take to build out that infrastructure? And are you going to be able to swap your battery if you're in the middle of nowhere somewhere and you run out of juice? Right. You got to have that, that availability of that uh, battery swap. And you said 500 miles. Whew, I wish. Uh, that that's that's my other problem with EVs is you don't get 500 miles on that. It's usually around 300. Yeah, 500 would be. I think some of the newer EVs that they're announcing are, are claiming to get up to 500. But yeah, that would be mm. that would be nice if we'd have that in, in place today. And you mentioned infrastructure, and this is why the article that I've been re- that I was reading about this said that it's unlikely to happen in the U.S. at any time in the near future is that Tesla had uh, had taken on the role of building out that infrastructure and has more or less abandoned it for the time mm-hmm. being. 
because it just it's they've got other things on their plate, and that's not one that they're ready to tackle right now. And, and so if Tesla was the one that said, yeah, we'll take that on and we'll get this built, and then a few months into that project said, uh, we'll come back to this at some point, maybe someday, then it's probably a, a dream at this point in this country. Yeah, because you got to think, I mean, that equipment has got to be ridiculously expensive and the training that you got to provide because swapping out a battery, I'm sure it's not as easy as, you know, swapping out a couple double A's in your remote control at home. But um, <laughs> it's it's got to be expensive to roll that out. And yeah, Tesla, I think, started a battery swap center. And like you said, they just abandoned it. And, and they're really they're just focusing on their charging stations right now. Well, speaking of Tesla, Elon Musk had a good week and a bad week, but that bad part of the week turned out it was a good thing as well. Let's talk about the the problems that uh, Tesla saw uh, uh, with the hacking, essentially. Elon Musk said that uh, there was a failed Russian ransomware attack on Tesla, and it was serious. Uh, it was thwarted in a Federal Bureau of Investigation sting investigation this month. The Justice Department published a legal complaint Thursday detailing an alleged attempt by Russian national Igor Igorovich Khrushchev, 27 years old, who tried to bribe a Tesla employee to install malware in the company's network. The software was ransomware, which of course is used to encrypt a user's files and then hold them until a ransom is paid. Khrushchev allegedly offered to pay the unnamed Russian-speaking employee who worked at the Tesla Gigafactory in Reno, Nevada, $1 million to install the malware. The employee instead notified Tesla, which in turn contacted the FBI. Agents then ran a sting operation using the employee to catch Khrushchev, who was arrested this last Tuesday. Though the plot failed, Musk said this was a serious attack. The employee met Khrushchev with some Tesla colleagues between August 1 and August 3, which included a trip to Lake Tahoe. The Justice Department filings said Khrushchev did not want to be included in any photos of the trip. At one point, he told the group he would just remember the beauty of the sunset and did not need a photograph, according to the Justice Department, though he did eventually reluctantly pose with them. After the trip, Khrushchev asked the employee to meet with him again to discuss business. In the subsequent meeting, the Russian asked the employee to be part of his ransomware attack in exchange for 500 grand, later increased to $1 million. Khrushchev offered to pay in either cash or Bitcoin. The Justice Department said Khrushchev was operating with the help of and on behalf of associates, though did not say who was behind the plot. Khrushchev and his team wished to extract corporate and network data and threatened to publish it online unless the ransom was paid. The employee maintained contact with Khrushchev at the FBI's direction, gathering info about the hacker's methods and capabilities. At one point, Khrushchev claimed his team had extracted more than $4 million in ransom money from a company, which was later revealed to be Minneapolis-based CWT corporate travel firm. Now, George... First of all, wow, this, this I'm not, like a Tom Clancy novel. It's it reads just like fiction, doesn't it? It, it, it? it sounds like Tom Cruise will be making this movie next summer. Is what what it sounds like to me. But my first uh, my gut sinks when I think of I I would like to believe that I 100% can tell you right now with a surety that if someone offered me a hundred a million dollars for Eric Jensen's uh, email password, that I would say, no, take a hike. Uh, uh, you can't install malware on my producer's email. But for a million dollars, I'd probably do You're it. You're taking him down? I'd probably do <laughs> Watch it. Watch out, Eric. It's very kind Watch of you. Watch your iPhone. I, you know, everyone has a price. I mean, <laughs> for, for Austin, it's, it's lower than a million dollars. So it, if someone <laughs> were to say offer me... $500,000, you know. I, I could get them hooked up. You know what my daughter's life would be like with a million dollars in her daddy's pocket? A l very charmed and beautiful. <laughs> uh, but, I, and you know what? Maybe I'll give you 30 grand. You know what? I'll give you 300 grand of the million. How's that? Yeah, you know. Was that worth it to you? Yeah, hey, I'm such a good person. <laughs> I don't want to take that. I don't want to take that out of your little girl's pocket. Okay, I mean, right. I'm just such a good guy, but I'll just I'll, I'll let you have it. But George, in all seriousness, how how crazy is this that the employee realized, you know what, this is not worth 
threatening. If someone's willing to install malware on the Tesla's system to hold them for ransom, they're probably not above holding me and my family for ransom to get that money back at the end oh, of the not day. Not at all. And think of the implications if they were able to actually hack Tesla. Oh. Let's just let's take out the fact that, okay, they're holding it for ransom. They're just trying to get money from their data, right? Let's say somebody actually wanted to cause havoc with the Tesla fleet. What's to stop somebody? Because though the Teslas do have the self-driving capabilities, they're all connected to the um, to the cloud, basically. Uh, what's to stop somebody from hacking Tesla and all of a sudden take your car for a hostage oh, right. and want money from you? You know, right? Exactly. Uh, and that's so, the, you gotta think these think of this thing. So this employee did the right thing. Yeah, I mean this this story is just crazy. The more you read about it, and I'm sure there's a lot more that we don't know about. Yep, for sure, absolutely. I mean, the FBI is not into giving you all the details of their investigations, so there's probably yeah. more that took place here than what we're what we read there. But that sounds like an episode of uh, Law and Order that I would watch. What we just <laughs> what we just read right there. Now, uh, the the better news for Elon Musk and his company, uh, depending on who you ask is that they're one step closer to connecting a computer to your brain so that then when the Russians hack into Tesla, they also can hack into your brain. Sorry, just had to there you go. That's what connect you want. those links. You want your brain connected to the <laughs> Internet as if we're not all connected enough with everything that we've got uh, in our lives, all our devices. Now we're going to just hook our brain up to the, to the Internet. I read about that. That's a little Black Mirror-ish, you know, the, the, the show. <laughs> Uh, at a Friday event, Elon Musk revealed more details about his mysterious neuroscience company, Neuralink, and its plans to connect computers to human brains. While the development of this futuristic-sounding tech is still in its early stages, the presentation was expected to demonstrate the second version of a small robotic device that inserts tiny electrode threads through the skull and into the brain. Musk said ahead of the event he would show neurons firing in real time, the Matrix, in the matrix close quote and he did just that at the event musk showed off several pigs that had prototypes of the Neuralinks implanted in their head and machinery that was tracking those pigs brain activity in real time the billionaire also announced that the food and drug administration has awarded the company a breakthrough device authorization which can help expedite research on a medical device like building underground car tunnels and sending private rockets to Mars, this Musk backed in Denver is incredibly ambitious, but Neuralink builds on years of research into brain-machine interfaces. A brain-machine interface is technology that obviously allows for a device like a computer to interact and communicate with a brain. Neuralink in particular aims to bind, build rather an incredibly powerfully, powerful brain-machine interface a device with the power to handle lots of data that can be inserted in a relatively simple surgery. Its short-term goal is to build a device that can help people with specific health conditions. Now, that is exactly the the where I stand right now in, in, on the the w whether or not this is moral and ethical to be implanting uh, these microchips, so to speak, into living beings for research purposes, if it helps someone learn to walk again that otherwise would be paralyzed their whole life, or someone that can suddenly uh, hear or, or speak after a stroke and they, they, would other they otherwise wouldn't be able to, if it saves and changes lives, then these things in moderation with the right proper protocol in place and the safety uh, checks, I think can be a useful tool. What I don't want to see happen, George, where I stand right now, is I don't want to see this become the next iPhone. I don't want to see all of us lining up at the Apple store to get a, a microchip uh, uh, shot into above our eyebrow so that we no you longer have to carry a phone around. That's what's going to happen is it's going to be touted as a technology, like you said, that's going to help heal people or help people that can't walk, that are paralyzed, be able to walk or people see or hear. But my worry, and I think your worry from what you're saying, is that we're going to take it to a level where it's people who don't have any disabilities or don't have anything wrong with them, that they're just looking to upgrade themselves. And at that point, it's going to become a race to 
the bottom or the top, I guess, however you want to look at it, is how far can we upgrade? How, how much more can we do? And then the moral aspect of it is going to be thrown right out the window because it's going to be, well, we would never do this to, to somebody or, or to a person, but what if our adversaries did? We need to do it first so that we're prepared. You know, and it, becomes it becomes an arms race. Kind of, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and that's where I think it could get a little, little scary and a little weird going forward. Now, the, the wiring is thinner than a human strand of hair. The, the wiring that's being connected to your brain, but still you're connecting wiring to the, your brain. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> yep. This is not, this is not something to be taken lightly or to just say, yeah, let's give this a shot and see, see what happens here. But so the, the, the ethics that comes along with it, I think is a huge part of the discussion. Will it ever happen is another part of the discussion. I think you and I are both uh, on board with the idea that this is going to be a thing. This is going to happen, and with this new uh, new revelation that that they're actually starting this inside uh, of pigs, which are anatomically pretty close to humans, especially in the brain, that means that we're closer to this than we are to flying cars, like we were talking Probably. about last hour. Yeah. <laughs> Probably, yeah. Yeah, uh, and just because we can do something doesn't mean we necessarily should ah there we go there it is it's one of those things that i think we need to look at putting in some regulations some some safety nets in place so that this technology doesn't get out of hand and doesn't create bigger issues than it's trying to solve 855-340-ZONE i'd love to hear from our listeners on this topic 855-340-ZONE would you sign up to be one of the quote unquote guinea pigs, uh, the, to to when they, when this uh, comes around, would you be willing if they say we'll give you this device for free for life if you let us make you one of the trial uh, patients for the the essentially microchip brain implant eight five five three four ozone? I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Uh, it sounds like George, you and I both would not be. Okay, we would I, not I, sign up. I'd be out on that one. <laughs> <laughs> I'll sign up for the COVID vaccine trial. I'm not signing up for a micro trip uh, <laughs> yeah. trial. Yeah. I, uh, I'd try the flying car first, I think. <laughs> hey, uh, some bad news out of the United Auto Workers Union. The former president, Dennis Williams, was charged on Thursday in a Detroit court with conspiring with other union officials to embezzle hundreds of thousands of dollars in UAW funds, U.S. prosecutors say. The charging of Williams in a document called a criminal information follows the, follows the guilty plea in June of Williams' successor, Gary Jones. A criminal information is a court document typically used when the government has reached a plea deal with a defendant to plead guilty. So essentially what happened here was Dennis Williams was the president of UAW. Then Gary Jones took over. Then it was discovered that there was this embezzling happening. The feds got to Jones and said, if you turn, if you plead guilty and give us information on the other people involved, we'll cut you a deal. So Jones said yes, and now they're charging Williams based on the information that Gary Jones gave to them. Uh, According to the charges today, our further steps forward in our relentless relentless effort to ensure that over 400,000 men and women of the UAW have honest and ethical leadership, said U.S. Attorney Matthew Schneider. Uh, he said the union still needs to reform and a federal takeover remains an option. Based on the charges, Williams faces a maximum of five years in prison and a fine of up to $250,000. Now, when I hear that as the maximum sentence, George, this actually doesn't sound like, like when I hear about a, a union official embezzling money, I think, okay, we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars here. We're, and we're talking lifetime in prison. Now we're, no, we're just talking hundreds of thousands of dollars and five years in prison, which I'm not saying it was right. I'm not saying it's okay. What I'm saying is, do you think that this is being uh, downplayed or doctored a little to not look as bad as it actually was? I was going to say that doesn't, that just doesn't make sense. Why some, somebody that high ranking of an official, you think, he's pretty well compensated to risk everything, risk going to jail, you know, break the law for a couple hundred grand just doesn't, doesn't quite seem right. So yeah, that's kind of what the first, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but that was kind of the first thought that came to my head. I'm going, 
maybe they're kind of downplaying this a little bit. Maybe there's a little bit more um, behind the scenes than it, than it looks like. Cause is he like the 15th person that I'm reading is it was charged uh, yeah. during this, this probe. So it's got to go pretty deep and maybe he's not even the top of it. That's exactly the, so that's another important, I'm glad you brought that up because over a dozen so far have been investigated and some have been charged or are going to be charged and this might just be the start. This might be the small potatoes that they that, but yet they have all the info, and so they throw the throw uh, prison time and, and fines at them and say, you know, we could make this kind of pretty much go away for you if you, the small potatoes, give us the big potatoes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's probably yeah. what they're building the, a case out here is to get to the meat of the of the thing rather than just the side dish. That's kind of how we'll you see. start. You start around the edges, and you kind of eat your way in. And, and as, <laughs> as you get closer to the middle, it is where you get the 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 big uh, the big guys in. But um, yeah, it'd be interesting to see this story kind of play out. I mean, I'm glad that they're they're cracking down on the corruption. It, corruption has no place in in business and in unions, and it's just it it undermines everything that the union is trying to accomplish. Yep. Uh, here's a feel good story out of CBS Five in Phoenix on a Friday afternoon. Miles Oliver is rifling through the back of his 2007 Ford Fusion. Seems like things are not working out for people our age anymore, says the 55-year-old. The car's a little messy because this is where the Army veteran has been living since early April. It's just a little disheartening to have to rely on social services when you've served your country and you're not a criminal, Oliver said. A few months ago, he'd been paying rent for an apartment month to month. But he was concerned about the coronavirus and wasn't picking up as many shifts as a delivery driver for a pizza shop. Money was tight, and after missing a rent payment, he was locked out of his apartment. Oliver was now sleeping in his car during Phoenix's hot summer nights. It was brutal sitting in the car trying to sleep, so I wound up sleeping in parking lots, parks, city parks, Oliver said. He was still able to get by delivering pizza using his old Fusion and driving to job sites to pick up day labor jobs. But then his most valuable possession broke down with 170,000 miles on the engine. It was everything to me because it was basically my home, Oliver said. Well, that's where the folks at Landmark Auto and Diesel come in. We do what we can to try to stay in business and try to help people at the same time, said Daniel Spangoletti, co-owner of Landmark Auto. The car needs a lot of work. A lot of it differed maintenance that Oliver wasn't able to pay for. Fluids need to be changed, the motor mounts are bad, the control arm bushings, suspension stuff, Spagnoletti said, ticking off a long list of items. But after hearing Oliver's story, the shop wanted to help. And so they're going to be doing all the labor for free, and they'll match the money raised for parts from a GoFundMe up to $500. If they get enough donations, they might even try to buy Oliver a more reliable vehicle. You know, if I do something good and people see that I'm doing something good, and maybe they want to do something good too. And if everybody did something good for everyone else, that's where I want to live, Spagnoletti said. It's all in the hopes that a little kindness could get Oliver back on the road to getting off the streets. I need to pull myself up, tighten my belt, and drive forward, Oliver said. That is, that's a story that I think it's really cool what that uh, auto dealer is doing for this veteran. Uh, I think it speaks volumes as to what our veterans have to go through at times in this country, and they should never have these problems, in my opinion. If you sign up to defend and, and give your life for a country, you should have your life taken care of by that country. But this this dealership stepping up, offering to fix the car, I think this could spread even into more so of them getting him, with the help of the public, a new car and paying. We need to we need to pay our veterans back in this way, George. And I know that's a uh, a soft spot for the people at Mark Miller Subaru, as you've been in long long time partners with the the Malinois Foundation. Yeah, they've they've been a great partner of ours for many years, and wow, what a great story! I'm I'm really glad that you're here sharing these feel good stories too to um, to show that people are out there doing good in the world. And um, yeah, like like you said, it's it's tough to hear a veteran going through those struggles and um, not not having that help that that he really needs, but uh, what a great uh, dealership to do that for him and to, to, to do the labor and, and to, you know, raise money for the parts. And hopefully they're able to, to get him in a more reliable car, if not just fix this one up. Absolutely. 
Uh, 855-340-ZONE. You can be part of the show here, 855-340-ZONE. Would you, would you buy a 3D-printed from-the-ground-up car, George? Would you, would you buy a car that was completely 3D-printed? I don't see why I wouldn't. I think that the advances that have been made in 3D printing are just incredible. It's, it's one of the most fascinating technologies coming out, and um, it's going to revolutionize manufacturing. It's going to revolutionize home building. And if it can build better cars by 3D printing, why not? I'd drive one. Uh, yeah, and we were talking earlier about the the brain chip idea and how that can help people with medical conditions. I've got a couple of dear friends from high school who made national and international news a few years ago when their their son, who was was born with some uh, some birth defects and was really life and death situation day to day. Well, a doctor in the the Midwest, I believe in Michigan, 3D printed this this part. And, and and installed it, and their son has now lived a more normal, happy life over the last three, four years since that happened, when he was expected to not live that long. And now they think he's going to be have a chance to live a full, healthy life. Uh, just incredible technology. And now that it's being used in car parts, like, and I'm not talking just little cars. I'm talking not not little car names. I mean, but big time names like Porsche. Or Porsche, 911 GT2RS. They are. They have started testing 3D printed pistons for the Porsche 911, and they they think it's gaining them 30 horsepower just by these pistons being so much lighter than the traditional uh, metal based pistons that go into an engine. Uh, Porsche Porsche said it has identified other applications for the technology as well. It introduced 3D printed seat cushions in May, and it offers 3D printed versions of about 20 classic car parts that are no longer in regular production, such as a clutch release lever that fits the 959. This manufacturing technology is also technically and economically interesting for Porsche for special and small series, as well as motorsports, the company concluded. So pretty cool stuff. You got a part that is outdated, Maybe they'll be able to 3D print that part for you in the near future. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, yeah, and then 3D printing is, is more efficient. Um, if they can make parts lighter, more reliable from it, why not? I think it could, like I said, revolutionize a lot of industries. Yep, absolutely. All right, we'll take our final break here on Utah Car Sense. Get your phone calls on the other side, 855-340-ZONE. 855-340-ZONE. Got a lot more to talk about, including uh, uh, an incredible find on KSL Classifieds that it will make you feel really good, and a man calling for the ban of vehicles in one of America's largest populated cities. I'll tell you about that and more next on Utah Carson. Have a car question? Ask the experts at 855-340-ZONE. You're listening to Utah Car Sense with Jeff Miller and Austin Horton. Presented by Mark Miller Subaru on 97.5 and 1280 The Zone and The Zone Sports Network. Welcome back. Final segment this week here on Utah Car Sense presented by Mark Miller Subaru. I'm Austin Horton here with George Roska, General Sales Manager of the Midtown Store, 3535 south state george how is inventory right now i know it's it's low the demand is high which is good the inventory the supply has been a little low what are we looking at right now you know it's getting a little bit better um we're we're getting truckloads in almost every day um it's definitely tight though it's it's not as bad as it was maybe two months ago but the the inventory is still not as good as it was in the last few years for sure what do you have the most of available right now? If someone wanted to come in today and drive away with their car today, what do you have the most of? I mean, we, we have models of everything. So if you want an Ascend, you can get one. If you want an Outback, you can get one. I think the only thing I don't maybe have on the lot is an STI at the moment. Oh. Um, but I think I have a couple incoming. Um, I have more Imprezas than probably anything else. Um, so if you're looking for something on the more uh, less expensive side, a little bit smaller, maybe something for the kids, uh, the Imprezas are going to be great. And they've got some great incentives right now on them, great lease rates, uh, finance rates. Um, if you're looking to, to pay cash, there's some um, some incentive money there, too. So 
um, it, it's a good time, really, no, no matter what you're looking for. And you, you it's, it's very, very rare to see uh, the, the traditional idea of an incentive that you might hear on a, a radio or TV ad for another car company. You don't see that with Subaru because they understand that that takes the value off of the car. But where you're getting those incentives is in the interest rates. Yeah, the interest rates right now are fantastic. I mean, you've got you've got zero percent um, depending on the model. Um, even even on the ones that don't have zero percent, we have one point nine available. Wow. Um, even the twenty twenty ones have two point four nine and one point nine depending on the model. So um, yeah, now now is a great time if you're looking to finance a car or or lease. Really, the rates are just amazing. Well, and earlier we listed the the biggest reasons I was enjoying the Forester over our Crosstrek, and we forgot to I forgot to mention the Crosstrek was innovative for us because it was the first time we'd been in a car that helped us stay in a lane, but it really was more like a bump back and forth kind of assist, where if you floated left, it bumped you back right and then back left before it said, all right, you got to do this on your own here, fella. Well, now the Forester's got that lane split technology that keeps us right right in the dead center of a lane uh and obviously we keep our you keep your hands on the wheel it makes you keep your hands on the wheel but it splits it right in the middle and you know what i've discovered george is i typically pull left when i'm driving down the road and i wonder if a lot of americans do just being that the steering wheel is on the left side of that of the car uh but i do float a little left and that it's been pulling me back more right and it's it's been an adjustment because I'm like, no, I'm, I'm going too far to the right, but I know that it's splitting it right in the middle. That's funny because I actually drive a little to the right. Oh, do you? Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I And I think I thought it was because, like, the roads here in Utah tend to have a little crown on them. Mm. And they kind of, you know, if you're in the right-hand lane, it kind of tends to pull you to the right. So I, I always thought it was because of that. But I've noticed that, too, in my car. It, it, it tends to pull me to the center, but it pulls me left. So I think we're, <laughs> you know, a little different for everybody, but um, definitely better to be in the middle of your lane than hugging the, yeah. the, the line there and kind of going into the, the neighborhood lane there. And don't adopt what my dad says. He takes his half out of the middle. You can find your half wherever you want. You know, <laughs> he just drives down the center. <laughs> that's not how it works. All right. Uh, well, this, this article in the New York Times, I wanted to run by you, George. Uh, it, it presents the idea of banning, yes, banning cars in Manhattan. And it starts out with this little slideshow. It says the island of Manhattan is about 23 square miles. Much of it is covered in roadway, street parking, and parking garages. And it's got a little, uh, it turns it orange where the cars and streets are. And it's pretty much the majority of the island. If you added up all the space Manhattan devotes to cars, You'd have an area nearly four times as large as Central Park. But what if they gave that space back to New Yorkers? And that's what Farhad Manju wrote about in the New York Times. He said, I've seen a future without cars, and it's amazing. He said, as the coronavirus lockdown crept across the globe and this past uh, winter into spring uh, in New York, you you had all these these things shut down and the traffic went way down. He said that cars took a break from killing people. About 10 pedestrians die on New York City streets in an ordinary month. But under that lockdown, the city went a record two months without a single pedestrian fatality. In California, vehicle collisions plummeted 50%, reducing accidents resulting in injuries or death by about 6,000 per month. And as the roads became freer of cars, they grew full of possibility. Rollerblading, skateboarding, Cells uh, of bicycles and e-bikes skyrocketed, but there was a catch. Cities were beginning to cautiously open back again, and people started to wonder how are they going to get into work. Many worried about public transit. Now it turns out that uh, public transit is not that much more dangerous, if not more dangerous at all, than traveling in a car, as long as everyone masks up and you're careful about what you touch and how often you sanitize your hands. But the other thing that happened is that traffic crept to a crawl there in, in, in Midtown where the average uh, drive was less than five miles per hour the cars were going, only slightly faster than walking and obviously slower than riding a bike. And so what he's suggesting here is that they ban cars from the island of Manhattan. 
And he, what he thinks that will do is it will not only open up roadways, but will provide opportunity for more parks and more green spaces. And you know what, George? At first I was like, okay, hippie. You lay off my combustion engine uh, addiction that I have. But then I started looking into it, and I've never lived in Manhattan, but you can pretty much get wherever, whenever in the city of Manhattan without owning a car, right? You, you, you don't. It's not really necessary to have to have a car there. I, well, I had a, I had some family that lived in <laughs> Manhattan for a while, and they just most like people who live there and frequent there, like they do not have more than one car. And even if they have a car, they don't they don't use it often just because of how advanced the subway systems are there mainly mm. is the trains come every five to ten minutes and they go everywhere. And if you can't get anywhere on a train, you can go on a bus. So plus taxis as well. So, yeah, New York is not typically a city that you, you need a car in. So, Je- George, you were saying defi- define necessary. What do you mean by that? Well, define necessary. I mean, sure, you can get rid of cars. Um, and what do you replace them with? As long as you can build out a, a reliable network of fast, convenient public transportation that's on par with European cities, then great. You know, get rid of get rid of cars in Manhattan. But if you just get rid of cars and just open up the roads to just bikes, pedestrians, everything like that, you're still going to need to use a car every now and then. You're still going to need to go grocery shopping. You're still going to need to get big things carried over to your apartment, let's say. How are you going to do that if you don't have a car? So I don't think the solution is as easy as black and white van cars or don't van cars. Mm -hmm. I think you got to have some smart solutions such as some congestion pricing. Um, You got to limit the number of cars that enter. You got to limit the number of Ubers, the number of delivery trucks. I think right now the biggest issue in, in New York City um, I have some friends that live there. It's it's not the cars. It's all the Amazon trucks and UPS and FedEx. And the cities weren't really designed for any of that. Yeah. So right now, all of those trucks are just basically stopping and stopping traffic for five minutes until they can get unloaded, have the FedEx guy take the package upstairs or, or, or leave it at the door with the doorman. And then there's nowhere for them to park. Yep. There's no alleys for them to go in. You know what I mean? So I don't know if banning cars isn't really the answer, but we got to think differently about it for sure, especially in cities that were built up for cars such as New York, you know. Yeah. And he does later in the article he says for, for along that along those lines if you're not banning cars completely, uh banning private cars but still allowing obviously buses and rideshare and taxis which there's no I mean taxis I I bet taxis make up a third of the cars in New York, if not more. <laughs> Probably, if not uh, more. But he has this animation that's pretty cool. He's, he's got on the Manhattan Bridge, there are seven lanes for cars. His idea is that you reduce that. A new layout would replace four of those lanes with bus lanes, paths for cyclists, and a pedestrian promenade. Three lanes would go to taxis and rideshare vehicles. The middle lane of traffic would switch direction depending on demand. So that it's pretty... That's a pretty radical idea, but this animation that he's that he's got in this article it, it looks pretty pretty cool. And what that does is it does reduce the the lanes of traffic to three from seven. You still have the four subway lines, and you've got now two two bus only lanes. That would help with the congestion, I think. Yeah, I think so, and I think that's where we got to get creative. Is yeah, maybe you don't have big four lane roads for, you know, private cars for everybody. And you have some lanes that are bus only or uh, ride share only or things like that to, to help reduce collect, um, congestion. But um, I, I don't think banning cars is the answer. People are still going to need to go visit their kid at college. People are still going to want to take a trip out in the mountains one, you know, one weekend or something. And so I think if, if you get rid of transportation solutions, it's going to, it's it's not going to help people's quality of life in, in any way. Yep. I, I, yeah, I think so as well. I, it's an interesting discussion. It's an interesting conversation. Uh, I think there is still need for private cars, I, especially, I mean, we're talking about Manhattan here, where, as you mentioned, Eric, and you're right, the there's a bus or a subway every five minutes that can get you pretty much anywhere you need to go. In this city, though, I could not, I can't, I can't abandon 
my private car because I need it at, you know, inopportune moments when I don't have that immediate availability of a front runner train, which only comes every so often. And after certain hours, only once an hour. And if I need to get up to a hospital or get to work it, with that, with the moment's notice, I've got my private car that can get me there. If I'm at the uh, beck and call of public transportation, we're not quite ready for that here in this in this area. Yeah, no, that, yeah. That, that, that's not really what I'm. I was advocating. For. Oh, I know. I, I just I know. wanted to point out that you can do it in some places, but yeah, the public transportation system here is not what it is in New York by any means. And if Salt Lake ever wanted to cut down on emissions by cutting back cars or anything, they'd need way more train lines, I think, because I think the tracks are the most effective of the public transportation as someone who uses public transportation a lot. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, they they need to run kind of more convenient bus lines because some of these bus lines, like, just don't stop in residential areas, which is not helpful when that's kind of what you're drawing your customer base to do is not drive to work. So Yep. Yeah, if it takes you another 20 minutes to walk home from where the bus drops you off after a long day at work, most people aren't going to do that. I think there will always be cars as long as people want the convenience, the comfort, and the freedom of deciding where and when they want to go. Yeah, and especially in a climate like we have, that 20-minute walk from the bus stop to home in the summer is hot, but at least you're not being snowed and rained on. Then you get into spring, winter, and and autumn, and and, or fall in this state, and forget about it. 20 minutes in in a blizzard is like an hour. That's not not, (laughs) – you're going to have all kinds of issues that come up. All right, another pretty cool feel-good story here. Uh, A discovery on KSL classifieds led to a family reunion of sorts for one Utah man. Nick Samuels thought his father's 1980 Chevrolet Corvette was gone forever. His father, Michael Samuels, sold it while Nick was serving overseas in the U.S. Air Force 10 years ago. I honestly thought I would never find it. It was just kind of high hopes and wishful thinking, he said. Uh, Spur of the moment, at the time, I just kind of felt like hopping on and taking a look. And little do you know... I didn't even go to the second page. It was like the fourth one in. The he popped the, the fourth one in on the fr- on the first page. He popped the hood to verify it was his father's car, and was overcome with emotion when he saw his parents' initials. He was diagnosed to live six months, and he lived like eight years with his cancer. Samuel said, "His father died in 2014. Never did he think he would say hello to this car again, buying it to bring it back home. Kind of feels like he is there with me." Samuel said. For the man who loves to fix things, finding this car is, a, is, in a sense, fixing him. Life's not permanent, especially what you what you have while it is there. Enjoy the little things, said Samuels. That's, that, what, that, I don't know, George. Some might call that luck. Some might call it coincidence. That's a little something extra, in my opinion, that he just, on a whim, hops on KSL Classifieds, and the fourth car listed happens to be his late father's Corvette. Yeah, Pretty that's, crazy. that's a pretty big coincidence. <laughs> Now, I, I am mad at KSL Classifieds, though, I'll tell you that, because they make it way too easy for uh, a car addict like myself to just peruse, <laughs> to just browse, and, and to, to look and dream. And it's just, it gives me a false hope, gives me a false sense of hope that I could get on there and buy a, a Chevy Corvette uh, at, the, at the drop of a hat. I don't have those isn't kinds it, of fun. Isn't it fun, though? It is still fun, yeah. It's I, I, a few a few months back. I got into this uh, addiction of looking up house listings and look and looking at all these houses that I'm not buying houses. I'm not in the market, but I somehow fell into this kind of hobby and pastime of just reading through house listings. I don't know. I'm kind of weird. Maybe I need some help. <laughs> we all do. <laughs> uh, here's a story out of England. Police raided a former firehouse, a converted Holyoke firehouse. A traffic stop in Pelham last week led police to discover a converted Main Street firehouse in Holyoke filled with over 50 pounds of marijuana, exotic and high-end cars, a cache of 24 illegal guns, and millions of dollars, a base of operations, they called it, for an illicit pot operation. Corey Taylor, 41, of New Salem, was arrested in Pelham on August 21st when state police allegedly found a, uh, approximately 138 pounds of marijuana in a van he was driving. 
Taylor was brought to a local county jail. He was bailed out the same day. But after his arrest, investigators kept digging into his background, eventually leading to the discovery of the former Holyoke firehouse he allegedly used as a base of operations for an illegal marijuana operation. Taylor did not appear for his arraignment uh, and is considered armed and dangerous, according to the district attorney's office and court records. According to a police report written by State Trooper William Medina, Taylor was pulled over around 1.30 in the afternoon on August 21st in, a, in Pelham for allegedly using a cell phone while driving. Medina wrote that when he approached Taylor's van, he smelled fresh marijuana and noticed six green shrink-wrapped containers in the back of the van that were about the size of hay bales. Taylor allowed police to inspect the inside of his van. Medina said he opened one of the boxes and noticed it was packaged to avoid detection with sealed plastic bags containing what was believed to be marijuana inside. A search of the vehicle by police allegedly yielded 138 bags of marijuana weighing around 1 to 2 pounds each, brass knuckles, and a FedEx uniform and magnetic sign. Based on the amount of marijuana found in the van, the Massachusetts State Police Commonwealth uh, enforcement team and the U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency were called to assist. Taylor allegedly initially told police that he was paid to receive the marijuana and deliver them to a man named Juan at the Basketball Hall of Fame in Springfield. Figueredo wrote that Taylor said he had had a source in California who shipped approximately six bales of marijuana to his mother's house in New Salem. Police gained consent to search a house. A large garage on the property was found to contain 37 cars valued at over $1 million. The majority of them were older Toyotas. One car was wrapped in plastic shrink wrap. Taylor's mother told police that she was not aware of her son, if her son had a job, that she was aware her son received large boxes but never opened them. Taylor was eventually brought to the Hampshire County House of Correction. Investigators learned that he'd been tied to a previous law enforcement investigations, and that led them to the police house or the firehouse in Holyoke where they found uh, eight exotic high-end cars, 24 guns, ammunition, several million dollars in cash, and over 50 pounds of marijuana hidden in built-in compartments. We read that story earlier in the show, uh, George, that sounded like a Tom Clancy novel. This sounds like a Tom Clancy novel. Uh, yeah, I should have saved that comment for this one. <laughs> <laughs> now, if we could get this guy and that guy to get together somehow, then we'd have a, a mega blockbuster on our hands. Then you go, yeah. What are these people? People have too much time on their hands, man. I like that they asked his mom, what does your son do for a job? And she said, I don't know if he has a job, but he gets all these boxes he... all the time. <laughs> oh, mom. <laughs> <laughs> Threw him right under the bus there. <laughs> so uh, there you go. Pretty wild story uh, out there in in England. All right, last thing I want to talk about uh, today with you, George. There's an article uh, that, that uh, on cars.com that is titled, How Many Miles is Too Many Miles for a Used Car? And we, I don't need to read the whole, the whole article. We don't need to get into it. But if I just asked you that question, do you have a, a prepared response in your, uh, in your expertise? Is there a certain amount of mileage, or is it really case-by-case case specific? One million miles. No, I'm just kidding. It's it's really <laughs> not, not nine hundred ninety nine thousand. One million is yeah, too many. Yeah, you roll it over and you're done. Too much, you know. You, you're not buying that one. But um, no, you got to really look at how the car's been taken care of because you could have Oops, a car I with fifty thousand miles that looks worse oh. than a car with three hundred thousand miles on it. Um, in fact, I got a I got a fun story to share that okay. uh, you know it was a mistake that I made um, a couple weeks ago. I'm appraising a truck. And uh, I go out, I scan the VIN, I get in the truck, I plug the miles in, I walk around it. Nothing out of the ordinary. It's a 2007 with 150,000 miles on it. Truck looks actually in great condition. I'm thinking, you know, this thing's pretty nice. I, we do the deal. I give the, the customer the value for it. They accept. Everybody's happy. And uh, I, I go to um, do the stickers on it and, and put it out on the lot for sale. And I look at the Carfax and all of a sudden I realize this thing's been, the odometer has been changed on it. It had 350,000 miles. Oh, oh no. Yeah. So 
I mean, it is what it is. We own it at that point. The deal's done. We're not going to go back to the customer and say, hey, you know, something happened. Uh, but uh, it just goes to show you that a truck with 350,000 miles on it, I would have thought nothing of it because it looked so good and it drove so nice and everything looked like it had 150. So moral of the story, look at how something's been taken care of. It could have over 300,000 miles on it and, and it'd be just fine. So I, I, I've, I was reading a report over a week ago about odometer fraud in the state of Utah and it's is do you see that a lot is that a, a big problem or is this rare um it's pretty rare and I don't think it was it was fraud per se I think it was just something I missed you know I didn't I didn't ask the customer how many miles his truck had if I did he probably would have said it had 300,000 but uh, oh, okay. I, I misunderstood. Off. I thought the odometer had been spun back or something. Okay. It had been changed. So when you change an odometer, there's a sticker that goes on the yes. door. Okay. And, and we just missed it. And I it see. was just one of those things that, yeah, no, it wasn't any fraud or anything. It was sometimes the odometers do break. That's and, what you meant by the odometer be... had been changed. It was a new odometer. Yeah, new odometer. Yeah, yeah the odometer okay. itself had actually been well, replaced. Not so. that new if it's 150,000 <laughs> 150, on it. Yeah, 150,000 yeah. miles ago, you know. So but, it was. Uh, it had 200,000 when the odometer broke. He put a new odometer correct. in. You yeah. didn't realize that. It was 150,000 miles, but you add those together, you're at 350. You add those together. Yeah, and the Carfax was all right. The Carfax had everything in, in, in correct order. Um, so that's why it's important, A, look at the Carfax when you buy a used car, and uh, B, um, really look to see how this thing had been taken care of because this truck had probably over 60 service records. And so if you see a car like that over 100, 200,000 miles, but you do see a lot of those service records and yeah, go get it inspected, you know, make sure nothing's um, happened in the meantime, but don't be afraid of a car just because of miles. Yep. I always, uh, my, my non-expert advice when buying a used car is there's a reason someone's selling that car. Just make sure you know the reasons and if you and if it's something you can live with, then yeah, go ahead and do it. But always be cautious. Always do your homework, and hope you don't get stuck with something. I myself, as George knows, I've I got stuck with a, a used lemon of sorts. The the at first was not titled branded title, and now and then it came back titled branded a few months later. And that them's the yeah. breaks. But you gotta yeah. you gotta make sure that you're ready to accept those risks and roll the dice. All right. Well, George, that's going to do it. Happy to have you back on the show, my friend. Glad all is well with you. Yeah, glad to be here. And uh, wow, that show went fast, just like the, the August has, and hopefully the rest of the year does. Let's get on to 2021 and a vaccine and a new president. No, I didn't say that. Whoops, we're going we're gonna to go to break now. That's going to be it for this week here on Utah Car Sense. I like it. Thanks. <laughs> for George Roska and Eric Jensen, I'm Austin Horton. We'll see you next week on Utah Car Sense.